Well, good evening, Grace Baptist Church. It is a privilege to be with you guys virtually. I wish I could be there in person. I really wanted to go to Canada. It's been a, a desire I've had for several years. Uh, sorry we can't be there with you guys, but I know it's a difficult circumstance. Um, but I hope that uh, this message will be a blessing to you. Turn, if you will, to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9 is where we'll be tonight. And I just want to say, Pastor White, thank you so much for being willing to have us uh, even in the midst of Corona, even though we have to do it virtually, I appreciate you guys having us. Uh, shout out to uh, Brother Tim. I wish I could see you uh, again. I miss you guys, and I hope you guys are um, doing well over there uh, with the with your with your family and everything. Matthew chapter nine. We are going to start in verse number thirty-five. Matthew chapter nine, verse thirty-five. It says, "And Jesus went about all the cities and villages." <coughs> teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Then saith he unto his disciples, his, his famous statement, the harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord, thank you so much for the opportunity to have uh, church tonight. I pray that you will take uh, your word and with your spirit. I pray to do what I can't do in my flesh. I pray that you'd help this message from your word to be a blessing to Grace Baptist Church there in Surrey, Canada. And I pray that you'd be glorified, Lord. We pray that you help us to love you more as a result of our time together with you tonight. We thank you for loving us and demonstrating and proving that love for us 2,000 years ago on the cross. It's in your wonderful name that we pray. Amen. David Livingston is one of my favorite missionaries, and he, uh, as a child, would sit on his father's knee, and his father would tell him about all these different missionary stories, how they went to another field across the, uh, across the oceans to another part of the world, and how they started churches, they shared the gospel with people that never heard, they went into villages where they never heard the name Jesus, and he uh, aspired to be a missionary just like that. He told his dad, I want to be a missionary just like that when I grow up, and so that became his goal in life, that became his desire, and later on, he packed his bags, got on a ship and went uh, to uh, Africa. And uh, when he when he got there, shortly before going there, he prayed a prayer, a famous prayer that he prayed, and he said, Lord, uh, send me wherever, only go with me. Lay any burden on me, only sustain me. Tie any binds except for the ties, uh, sever any ties except for the ties that bind me to your service. Into your heart. And he went there to Africa, and the very first thing that he saw that he noticed as the ship was getting close to the place where he would dock, he saw uh, in the morning sun, he saw uh, the, all these villages, he saw the smoke of all of these villages, which represented thousands and possibly millions of people who probably had never heard of Jesus Christ. And David Livingston was a pioneer missionary, and he went to Africa at a time when people had no idea who Jesus Christ was. And as he looked out there on the horizon, he wrote down something in his journal. He said, the, the haunting specter of the smoke of a thousand villages is burning in my heart. He said, the haunting specter of the smoke of a thousand villages is burning in my heart. He looked on the horizon and he saw this harvest 
a huge harvest. Thousands of villages represented. He only saw one tiny little portion uh, from one country in Africa, which is a vast continent with many other places full of thousands of other villages that didn't uh, know Jesus Christ. But he saw this mission field. He saw this harvest and he knew, man, there's no laborers over there. He saw this huge harvest and he knew there's no laborers over there. I've got to be a laborer. I've got to be a witness. I've got to be a missionary to this place. And he never forgot that scene of seeing the smoke of a thousand villages burning in the morning sun, which was burning in his heart. And, and people have asked me sometimes, you know, why, why have you left you know, your, your college, UC Berkeley, a very prestigious uh, college uh, here in the United States. And I had a, a partial scholarship for there. Right now it's ranked as the number two uh, public university in the college, uh, in the country. I'm not saying that to, to tout myself. Um, certainly uh, there's nothing special about me, uh, but you know why I left my college? You know why I'm, I don't have a house right now, really my home that my wife and I live in is our car. If you think about like our living room is the back seat, our, our master suite is the front, uh, the front seat and our, our trunk, I guess you could say, is our, it's our path, we don't use it as a bathroom, but, but you know why we're, we're living in a car right now, why we're living out of a suitcase right now, why we don't have a house, we don't have a, a home? You know why we left California Mail, why we, we left what we had and just started living on the road. We've been on the road for over a year now just trying to raise support because there's a haunting specter of a, the smoke of a thousand villages and it's burning in our hearts. We, we've been to Africa, we've been to Nigeria, we've seen the 200 million people that call Nigeria their home. Think about that, the continent of Nigeria, uh, the, the continent of Africa, one-seventh in the entire continent lives in the small country of Nigeria, 200 plus million people. There's a harvest, there's thousands of villages and barely any gospel preaching missionaries. Very few, I can count on two hands how many church planting, actually I can count on one hand as far as we know how many church planting independent Baptist missionaries that we have in the country. Very few. And we're going there, why? Because the harvest is plenteous. But there's no laborers. Laborers are few. And in this passage, Jesus presents this problem. I believe, I believe the greatest problem in all the world. We all have our problems. I can tell you, man, I can tell you America's got uh, our problems right now, I'm sure. In, in your country, there's some, some issues that you guys are facing. And even in our personal lives, I'm sure everyone has, a, has some problems that we're facing. But let me tell you what, the greatest problem in all of the world, the greatest problem that has ever plagued the history of the world, the greatest problem that the world will ever, will ever see is presented in this verse. The problem is the fact that there are thousands and millions and even billions of people who have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and there's barely any people going out and saying, hey, let me tell you about Jesus. Let me give up, quote unquote, the aspirations that I have for my life. Let me uh, lay down some of the things, some of the goals, some of the scholarships, some of the, uh, some of the accolades that I could have accomplished. Let me lay down my career because there's a greater cause that I have uh, to, to live my life for and that is the, the spreading of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The harvest is Plenteous. Jesus, in this statement, is talking about two completely opposing things. In the first part of the sentence, he says he's talking about something that's overwhelmingly positive, and then he shifts to talking about something overwhelmingly negative. The harvest, uh, the Bible is written to uh, a, a predominantly a farming a group of farming communities. People knew what the harvest was, and he uses this, this analogy on purpose. A harvest was the greatest time of the year. It was something they looked forward to. It was finally, after working, working, working all year, they were finally able to, to reap uh, what they had worked for. And it was a, a positive time. The harvest is an exciting time.
time of year. And there was, he was saying, man, the harvest, it's, it's huge. Surely it is, it is plenteous. The harvest truly is plenteous. It's an overwhelmingly positive, pleasant thing, but it is coupled by an overwhelmingly negative statistic. And that is the fact that there are very few people out there being willing to say, I'll, I'll go. I'll, I'll give so that someone else can go. I'll pray so that those that are called uh, can stay there, so that God's presence will be upon their lives. I will get involved because I, I understand the need. The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers, the willing, the people that are willing to say, hey, I volunteer to do something about it. The laborers are few. I don't know about you, but I, I don't want to get to heaven and have Jesus look at me and say, no, what did you do about the harvest? What did you do about the millions of people in Africa? You had resources. You had time in which you could pray. You had finances in which, uh, which you could have given. You had uh, a life and a future that you could have surrendered to the person who died on the cross for you. What did you do about the harvest? I don't want to get to heaven and give an account for what I didn't do regarding the greatest problem in all the world. And I had plenty of resources spiritually, financially, practically to do something about it. In this passage, we have the greatest problem in all the history of the world, but I do believe that if we follow the progression of this passage, we will see that God gives us a three-step solution in helping solve this problem. But first of all, we've got to understand what, what, what the problem is. We read this passage, and, and a lot of times we, we, there, there are some famous verses in this passage. Verse number 36 when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them. Uh, they were scattered abroad as sheep, having no shepherd. Verse number 37, another very famous emissions verse, if you will. Then saith he unto his disciples, the harvest truly is plenteous, the labors are few. Verse number 38, he gives this, this great, verse 37 is a great discourse. Verse 37, uh, 38 is a great prayer request. The only prayer request that Jesus gives in the Gospels, a lot of us uh, know about that. We've heard about that. Pray therefore the Lord of the harvest, he will send forth labors into his harvest. There's some great famous missions verses in this passage. Uh, but we've got to really understand what really starts, what really prompts this passage, what is really the starting point of this. And of course, it, the starting point of this, and of course, in verse 36, we see when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion. We've heard so many, uh, so many, so many, many messages on that verse, but we've got to understand the context. We focus so much on the beginning of that verse. Man, Jesus had compassion. And one time, I heard just a few, a few months ago, someone preached an entire message on this passage, and he preached on leadership. And certainly you can, get some, you can get some leadership qualities from this passage. You can definitely lead, learn uh, from Jesus' leadership skills uh, and his compassion uh, in leadership from this passage. But this passage is about missions. Well, we see this, this verse, first Jesus was so compassionate, yes, but what was he compassionate about? We've got to focus, uh, we've got to realize there is a middle part of this verse. Uh, verse 36, but when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep, having no shepherd. He was burdened. He was compassionate. Why? Because they, they had fainted. They were tired. They were worn out. And I will explain that in a second. Uh, but uh, turn another couple chapters forward, if you will, to Matthew chapter number 11. Matthew chapter 11, probably just one turn over. 
it says in verse 28, we have a very similar sort of a passage where Jesus brings up a similar concept here in the same book uh, in the Gospels, in the Gospel of uh, Matthew. In verse 28, it says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So it, it seems that in the book of Matthew, Jesus is really burdened about people's need for rest. He's so compassionate because the people had fainted and were scattered around his sheep having no shepherd. And in chapter 11, he's, he's burned because people are heavy laden. They've got these burdens on them and they need rest. Well, what is Jesus talking about? Is he talking about their physical rest? Is he, is he saying, man, I was so compassionate towards the people. I was moved with compassion because, man, those people, they just needed some sleep. Now, he's not talking about physical fatigue. When it says that uh, he was compassionate because they had fainted, it's talking about spiritual fatigue. It's talking, we've got to understand that Matthew was primarily written to who? To the Jews. He's speaking of them being faint, them being tired, them being worn out because of the weight of the law. And I believe the context of this whole passage really validates what he's talking about. He's not talking about, man, I was so burdened because they were so tired. He was burdened because they were worn out by this thing they could never get off their chest, this burden of the law. And he's saying, man, I was so burdened because all these people, they had plenty of teachers. There were plenty of teachers all throughout Judea. There were plenty of uh, Pharisees. There were plenty of scribes. There were plenty of priests telling them what to do. Uh, here's the 613 commandments, and then here's the oral law. He's got to do this, and this is how you fulfill this. This is how you accomplish this. This is how you're supposed to obey the law. And plenty of teachers telling them what to do, what to do, do this, do that, do this, do that. And they're a sheep just kind of following this voice and following this voice, and they got so tired doing this and trying to do that and trying to obey this and trying to say faithful to the oral traditions that the Pharisees was, were giving them and they were literally a sheep just kind of falling down on the side of the hillside that's what uh, being scattered abroad that's the the, the, the idea that, that the Greek word there kind of carries the, the picture of them just kind of being cast down because they were so tired they just kind of were scattered abroad they had fallen down on the side of the hill a sheep having no shepherd he was burdened because he was, he was burdened, he was compassionate because they were weighed down, they were tired, they were fatigued, they were worn out because of the weight of the, of, of the law, or you could say the weight of religion. You know what religion does? The end of the every day leaves us tired, it leaves us exhausted. It, it, the, the Jews uh, in, in this passage were just so worn out every day. They're trying so hard to be faithful to what they've been taught about the law. Man, I've got to work. I've got to work. I've got to do this. I've got to be right. I've got to make sure I, I keep the Sabbath. I've got to make sure I do all these things. And hopefully, hopefully it'll be good enough. At the end of the day, all you're left, is with, all you're left with is this burden. Man, I, I hope it's good enough. I, I don't know. I think of, I think of Nigeria. There's a hundred million Muslims that, that, that call Nigeria their home. The whole northern half of the country is Muslim. And I, and I think of all the voices that they have. There are plenty of teachers. There are plenty of imams telling them what to do. Hey, do this, do that, do this. They've got to uh, recite their, uh, their, their, uh, their, their belief. They've got to... The way you get into Islam is that you've got to recite uh, three times in the presence of, I believe, three different witnesses. They've got to vouch for your sincerity. You've got to say that there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his prophet. You've got to say that three times, and that kind of gets you into the starting point of, of Islam. And then you've got to move on to the other four pillars. You've got to, uh, first of all, you've got to recite. Then you've got to pray. You've got to uh, pray your salats five times a day. You've got to give. You've got to give your zakats, uh, which is you've got to, uh, you've got to give 2.5% of your, your income and all of your 
assets towards the Muslim faith, and uh, you've got to uh, travel, you've got to make your pilgrimage to Mecca, you've got to fast, you've got to fast during the month of Ramadan every year, and you've got to do all these things, and at, at the end of every day, all you're left with is this hope, man, I hope what I, good, what I did was good enough, I hope my prayers were sincere enough, I hope that I, I started uh, my religious journey early enough, and, and, and I don't know if my 10 years of faithfulness is good enough, I hope that I make it into paradise. I think of the 60 million Pentecostals that, that call Nigeria their home. And they've got plenty of preachers. There's a preacher in Nigeria who's worth $150 million. His ministry got two private jets, and he's getting rich off of poverty-stricken people. There's a church that will seat 100,000 people in Nigeria. Because you've got a whole bunch of poor people who have no hope hearing these promises. If you keep on coming, if you keep on giving, you're going to become rich. And you're going to become wealthy. You're going to become healthy. Your arm's going to be healed. Your sickness is going to be taken away. And they're healing, hearing all these broken promises in a country of poverty-stricken people. Of course, they're, they're open to some kind of a hope. And they're coming and they're thronging into these churches and they're hearing this, uh, this preacher take this Bible and do his own agenda with it. They've got plenty of teachers, they've got plenty of preachers telling them what to do, but at the end of the day, they're just burdened thinking, man, I hope what I gave was enough. I hope what I did, I hope my faith is strong enough. If you ask a, a Pentecostal in Nigeria, and really I call it African Pentecostalism, it's, it's just kind of on, on a different level in the continent of Africa. If you ask, uh, Pentecostal in Africa, you know, how do you get to heaven? They'll mention Jesus Christ, they'll mention getting saved, but at the end they'll say, uh, and you've got to live a, a righteous life, and you've got you've to be good enough, you've got to live a good Christian life. And of course, there's so much truth, but as the devil often does with religions that are close to Christianity, he, he adds just a little bit of falsehood, a little bit of uh, falsehood in, in their doctrinal beliefs, and sometimes the religions that are the, the, the closest to Christianity, the closest to the true gospel are his biggest weapons. And at the end of the day, they're just hoping, man, I hope what I did was good enough. I hope it did enough works. I hope I was righteous enough. I hope I gave enough. And by the way, if they're sitting there thinking, man, my, my giving wasn't good enough to get me wealthy and my faith wasn't good enough to get me healthy, why would they think that their faith and their giving and their religiousness is good enough to get them into heaven. If it's not good enough to get them wealthy or healthy, why would it be strong enough to get them into heaven? They have a lot of people, a lot of preachers, a lot of teachers telling them what to do, but the problem is in countries like this, there's not enough people telling them what Jesus has done. Because really, if you think about religion as a whole, and I don't believe in religion, I believe in a relationship. I believe that this Bible doesn't tell me that I've got to do religion. This Bible tells me I've got to enter into a relationship. And now that I'm in that relationship that I've received for free, uh, now I have the privilege of growing closer to him through this. Uh, but there's so many people taking this and doing their own agenda with it. But I do believe that you can sum up all the religions in the world into one symbol. It's an upward arrow. I'm trying to be good enough. I'm trying to work my way into paradise. I'm trying to climb my way up into heaven. It's this eternal ladder that never ends, this ladder of religion, this ladder of, of the weight of the law, this ladder of works, this ladder of self-righteousness. I'm trying to be good enough. I'm trying to do enough. I'm trying to give enough. And hopefully at the end of the day, hopefully at the end of my life, my good works will outweigh my bad works and I will get into heaven. I will get into paradise. And it's an upward arrow. I am trying my heart 
hardest to get up. But I'm so thankful that the Christianity that I see in this book does not teach us an upward arrow. We're not trying to work our way up. Why? Because our filthiness is, uh, is our, the, our righteousness is as filthy rags. So if the, all the good works that we do are filthy in comparison to the holiness of God, what in the world can we possibly do to earn our way up? We can't. But we don't have to. Because this book teaches us a downward arrow. We don't have to try to work our way up. Why? Because Jesus came down. And he died on that cross. The Bible says that he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We return everyone to his own way. The Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was brought as a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before her shears is dumb. So he openeth not his mouth. He went to that cross. The Bible says that his visage, which means his face, was so marred more than any man. His form, which means his body, uh, more than the sons of men. There was no man who was ever brutally beaten to the extent that Jesus Christ was up to that point in history. Uh, he took the sins of the world, placed it upon him, upon himself. The Bible says that he who knew no sin became sin. He, he, he made him to become sin who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He took the sins of the entire world, placed it upon himself so that his righteousness, if we place our faith in him, could be placed on us as if we had never sinned, as if we were always holy and we could be, become declared righteous. Why? Because of the blood of Jesus Christ and because of the greatness of the doctrine of salvation, because of what Jesus has done for us, we can wonderfully and boldly and gladly proclaim for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life or whosoever shall call upon the name the Lord shall be saved. And we have songs about those verses. We sing about those verses. We preach about those verses. We hear messages on John 3.16 all the time. But there are millions of people around the world, 200 million people in Nigeria, many of which have never heard that verse. They've heard the name Jesus. They've, they've heard a preacher or an imam tell them what to do religiously. They've heard someone take this book and teach and preach their own agenda with it, but they don't have enough laborers. The harvest is truly plentiful. There are many people. Nigeria, yes, there's violence there, but it's an open country. People are open to the gospel. Uh, and there aren't people there telling them, hey, stop trying to climb up the endless ladder. You don't have to climb up because Jesus came down. You don't have to try to work your way into heaven. I know you're faint. I know you're tired. I know you're exhausted by the weight of religion, but you don't have to do that because you can receive Christ as your Savior right now and you can have that weight lifted off your chest because Jesus Christ did everything for us. He said, it is finished. The, the work that was required for the redemption of the sins of the entire world was finished. All we have to do is receive the free gift of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but there are so many people who do not know that. The harvest truly is plenteous. I think in Nigeria, 200 million people, but the laborers, the people who are willing to say, Lord, by the way, whatever happened to, if, if any man come unto me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and, and follow me. Whatever happened to actually obeying that verse, whatever happened to the kind of Christianity that was re, a real Christianity where it's not, you know, you know, real Christianity is what we consider sacrificial Christianity. Someone who's living for God and saying, Lord, everything I have is yours. Uh, my whole life, my whole future is yours. That's not sacrificial Christianity. That's just called Christianity. 
in light of what Jesus has done for us, Paul said, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And he's saying, he takes the, takes the whole first 11 chapters of the book of Romans and explains what Jesus has done for us. And then he says, and it turns from doctrinal to practical. Verse uh, Chapter 12, verse number one in Romans is the transitional verse that changes Romans from doctrinal into practical. He's saying, this is what Jesus has done for us. Now I'm going to talk about what we should do for him. And he's saying, I'm beseeching you, I'm begging you, please, in light of what Jesus has done for us by the mercies of God, I present, I beg you, I beseech you that you Present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God. And I love the last part, which is your reasonable service. The word reasonable literally means logical. It just makes sense. Oh man, you're going you're gonna to live the rest of your life in Africa where you can't go out at night because it's dangerous and where the electricity is on on a good day of 12 hours and you're going to go give up the luxuries of America and go live there. Man, what a sacrifice. No, it's called reality. Because of what Jesus has done for me, the least I can do is live for him. Jesus died for me. I will live for him. The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. There aren't enough people who are willing to say, Lord, you can have your will and your way with my life, with my finances, with my future, with my time, because I want to be a part of the solution. As I mentioned before, God gives us a, I believe there's a three-step process in and I'll be really brief with this, a three-step process and how we can be a part of solving the greatest problem in all the world. Number one, we've got to see what Jesus sees. It all starts with what he sees. Verse number 36. But when he saw the multitudes, and think of what Jeremiah said, mine eye affecteth mine heart. We've got to see the people of the world through the eyes of Jesus Christ. He saw them as someone worth dying for. Do we, some, do we Sometimes we see them as someone not even worth giving $50 to. We've got to see them, how Jesus sees them. We've got to see what Jesus sees. Number two, and I'm hastening here. Usually I spend more time on this, but I'm going to, I'm going to go through this so I don't take, take up too much of your time. And plus on my phone, I only have a 30-minute limit, so I can only take a 30-minute video here. Number two, we've got to feel what Jesus feels. Uh, 30, verse 36, but when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them. Because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep, having no shepherd. And, and he saw the need, and that led him to feel a burden, a compassion for them. The word used in the, the Greek word there uh, used for compassion is the strongest word for pity in the Greek language. It's basically saying it, it burned him, it got him, it, it hurt him so much when he saw the need. For more laborers, when he saw that these people were faint because uh, they were so worn out by the weight of religion. We've got to feel compassion for those people. We've got to see what Jesus sees. We've got to feel what Jesus feels. Number three, most important, by the way, if we stop at step two, oh, I, I saw a video and, and, and I felt compassion for them. I've done my job as a Christian. No, we have accomplished nothing. We've got to see what he sees. We've got to feel what he feels. Number three, most importantly, we've got to do what Jesus does. What did Jesus do? Verse number 35 gives us an insight into what his life was all about. And Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in the synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom. That's what he was about. He came into this world to save sinners. And while he was in his ministry, he was preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And we should be involved in sharing the gospel with everyone around us. Who in your circle of influence has not heard the gospel from you? I wonder if there's someone that Jesus would say, man, 
when's the last time you told him or her about me? Have you ever told him about me? We've got to be involved in getting the gospel out to our neighbors, to our co-workers, through, through soul winning, through, through maybe visitation in our community to our, our, our family members. We've got to get the gospel out. We only have one life. It says in John chapter 9, verse number 4, that uh, uh, they're, they're, and I don't have the verse memorized, I would turn that, but for sake of time I won't, but he's, he's basically saying uh, that, that there cometh a time when the night cometh when no man can work. I must work uh, in the day while, while, while we have time because uh, in the, night, they're, they're, the night cometh when no man can work. And forgive me for, for kind of uh, getting a, a few words wrong in there, but there's coming a time when it's going to be too late to share the gospel. Once you get to heaven, there's no one to share the gospel with. Everyone there is saved. We only have one life. Let's live it to, to know Christ and to make him known. But I turn your attention to verse number 38. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. This is the only prayer request that Jesus gives us in the Gospels. And uh, we, we know this prayer request and he tells us what to pray for. But in Luke 11, I won't even have you turn there. He tells us how to pray. In the model prayer that Jesus gives us, he tells us uh, how to pray. And he says before he even gets into give us day by day or daily bread, before he even gets into supplication, asking for things, he starts off by saying, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. We need to pray through the filter of God's will. Lord, I pray that you do this, but before I even ask for that, before I even ask for laborers to be sent in the harvest field, I surrender to your will being done to thy kingdom coming. God forbid that we would say, Lord, I pray you'd send somebody to Africa, but I'm not going to go. And I'm not going to let my kids go. I'm not going to let my family members go. I'm not going to give towards that missionary trying to get there because I've got other things that are more important in my life. God forbid that we would say, Lord, I pray you'd do this, but I'm not going to have any part in you accomplishing my prayer request. God forbid that we would pray for the right thing in the wrong way, with the wrong heart. One story, and I will be done. There was a missionary to Africa, Henry Morrison. He uh, was there for 40 years. He and his wife were coming back. They were coming back to America, to the state of New York. And uh, his missions agency had acquired an apartment for him to stay in. They were coming back and they noticed that there was a big, huge throng of people. There were reporters, there were, there were bands playing, there were people very excited for the ship to come back. And they thought, man, maybe uh, my missions agency told people that we're coming back from Africa after 40 years of mission service. And they're excited to welcome us home. He came there and as they got closer to the dock, they realized those, not one of those people were there for them. They were there to welcome uh, former president of the United States back from his hunting trip. And he got discouraged and he, he went to another apartment and for two year, two weeks he just couldn't get over it. And his wife said, you got to give this to the Lord. He went up in his room and started praying and, and uh, he just, uh, after about 10 minutes, he came back down to the living room. His wife said, man, your, your countenance has just changed. What, what happened? And he said, I was praying and, and the Lord really spoke to me. I, I was, I was, uh, I was uh, discouraged that when I got home, there was no welcoming party. But the Lord helped me realize I haven't come home yet. And he realized that when I come home, there will be a welcoming party. There will be thousands of African faces that will come to me and say, hey, thank you for coming to my country. Because you came and shared the gospel to my village, I'm here in heaven today. And my question to you and to myself tonight is, when we get to heaven, when we get home, what kind of welcoming party are we going to receive? Who's going to come up to us and say, hey, thank you for giving. Hey, thank you for going. Thank you for saying, hey, aspirations, hey, future. I'm going to give those to the Lord because there's something more important to accomplish 
Thank you for being involved in missions. Because of how God used you, I am in here in heaven today. What's your welcoming party going to be like when you come home? Thank you.